Sleep is so important to your beauty, to your skin. It resets your cellular growth. It actually resets your microbiome, which is linked. Also, your gut health is linked to your skin too. So I think it's this whole thing again, you know, when you're getting adequate rest and the right quality type of rest, it gives every chance to your body, your cells, your brain, your organs, your skin to regenerate and renew. I'm Alison Rice and welcome to another special Self-Care Sundays episode brought to you by Studio Offline and Estee Lauder. I sit down with some of the brand's inspiring ambassadors and experts to have an honest conversation about life on the other side of the filter, self-care, sleep, and skincare. If you already adore following women like Nadia Fairfax, Eleanor Pendleton, and Deb Hutton, Estee Lauder and I hope you enjoy getting to know them on a deeper level. And also that you learn more about the powerful link between sleep, the health of our skin, and our overall well-being. Our brains and our bodies regenerate when we sleep, and the same goes for our skin. What we choose to put on it before bedtime matters. And so I hope our Self-Care Sunday series inspires you to own the power of the night. As always, these are raw, imperfect conversations grounded in reality. You can find more episodes at offlinethepodcast.com or by subscribing wherever you like to listen. And if you fancy seeing behind the scenes, because let's be honest, who doesn't? Follow Offline the Podcast on Instagram. When a few of my colleagues heard my next guest give a keynote on the challenges she faced as a new mother and the deep link between sleep and mental health, they became her biggest advocates. The founder of EQ Minds, Chelsea Pottinger, is a sleep expert an internationally accredited mindfulness and meditation practitioner, a keynote speaker, and a proud ambassador for mental health charities, including Are You OK? and the Gidget Foundation. Her consulting agency exists to empower people to take control of their mental well-being. She's currently studying a doctorate of clinical psychology and neuroscience, and she's extremely passionate about sleep. The very topic Estee Lauder and I created Self-Care Sundays to highlight and champion. Chelsea knows firsthand what happens when we don't get enough sleep. And so I'm proud to have an honest conversation with her ahead of World Sleep Day on March 13. It's a celebration of sleep and a call to action on important issues related to sleep, including medicine and education. One of the most powerful and valuable stories Chelsea shares through her work is her personal experience suffering from perinatal anxiety and depression, a condition that for her included sleep anxiety, insomnia, and eventually suicidal thoughts that involved the plane she was due to fly on, crashing somewhere between Australia and Scotland. Chelsea opens up about it in this episode so we can learn. And she also shares her advice on how to take responsibility for not only the amount of sleep we're getting, but the quality of sleep. She removes mum shame around services like night nannies and explains why sleep is in fact a solution to premature ageing. Here's the witty and engaging Chelsea for this special Self-Care Sundays episode in partnership with Estee Lauder. Oh, and happy World Sleep Day. I wish you all of the deep REMs.
I'm thrilled to chat to you and I'll tell you why. (laughs) A lot of um, girls in kind of women's lifestyle media, a lot of female journalists have seen you speak because I know you've been doing some wonderful work with Estee Lauder Um, and everyone raves about you. (laughs) Really? Yes. Um, and That's says how in, how insightful you are. And so I purposely didn't actually watch or listen to anything you've done because I wanted to have the experience fresh myself. Oh, that's lovely. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Thank you to those journalists. That's amazing whoever yeah. said that. So just so you know, that's your reputation. <laughs> that's beautiful. I really hope I live up to that on this podcast. I bet you will. <laughs> um, I think I want to start with um, – Firstly, saying like your generosity in sharing your experience with postnatal depression. Of course, you know this, but it's so valuable and it's so needed. So I want to say thank you for doing that because you're using your platform and your voice by choice in that in that subject matter. And as you know, like it isn't very widely spoken about still, which it feels like such a shame to me. But um, so I want to say thank you because you're doing some incredible work there. I know there'd be so many women who have benefited from hearing your story. Thank you, Alison. That makes me very grateful and humbled for you to say that. And also I really feel like there's more work still to be done always in this space. I was at an event last week and I shared where I was away for for our family. We went away for six weeks actually over the Christmas period. And while I was away, we lost a mother to suicide who had perinatal anxiety and depression. Mm. And that story made me exceptionally sad when I got home because our community is so small. And then it made me really mad with how the situation was handled in the hospitals. And then it made me really, these flames inside of me, really passionate that I will not leave this planet until, you know, we have built facilities for perinatal anxiety and depression patients. And there's so, it just reminds me all the time that there's so much more work to be done. And I'm so sad I didn't know that mother and I couldn't get to her on time. And But that's why I'm grateful, you know, to people like you, Alison, mm. and to my beautiful clients out there because they give us a stage and a platform to be able to, even if it just touches one person's life that's listening and where that could ripple and save a few other people. Mm. I think that's really beautiful. So thank you. Oh, thanks. Um, it's actually a question I had for a bit later on, but I'll ask it now. As I sort of read a little bit about your story, um, and of course I've got girlfriends who have new babies and we've had some really full and frank conversations about their mental well-being and and how they're coping. What I'm left wondering is, are our expectations of motherhood misguided or do you believe actually it is the healthcare system that has that lack of support and care when it comes to postnatal? I think it's a bit of a two-pronged approach. I think usually the pressure is coming from internally and I find the people that do suffer perinatal anxiety and depression usually aren't the ones that we expect to suffer. They're usually the people that are really smiley and happy in life and they're high-functioning, they're type A, they're holding down a really good career. And whether that's a genetic thing, you know, where it's, predisposed to the genetic profiling, whether their parent or a auntie or a grandparent had suffered anxiety, or whether that's a, you know, triggering event at the birth. 
And then so it's it could be a couple of things. One, genetics, and then it switches on that genetic predisposition when you give birth because of the hormonal change and the chemical imbalance. Two, it could be your internal pressure. So from going from a corporate career where you're used to doing everything and achieving and and then having this huge life change, especially for your first baby and going, wow, I haven't been given some kind of roadmap or survival guide of, you know, if I do this, they're meant to do that. Babies are really unpredictable. Um, three, we are perceived as a, you know, there's this whole, I guess, marketing thing out there that they say, hey, having a baby is the happiest time of your life. This is what it looks like. And there's the happy mom and the baby on the front of the magazine and they're just having the best time. And then four, I think from a awareness perspective, I know when I was going through my uh, pregnancy, we spoke a lot about many different things, but we never really touched on mental health. And yeah. I think that's changing, to be honest. I really do. I think my experience five years ago is very different to what it is now, but I still think that there's not enough conversations and maybe there's still some stigma around suffering perinatal anxiety and depression. Mm. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. I mean, it's interesting because as I sort of stare that down for myself personally, like my husband and I are sort of getting ready to start thinking about trying or we are thinking about trying and we've been on our own kind of longish journey with that. Um, That's come Mm. with a whole bunch of stuff. And I think I am going into it this time with much more of an awareness around just because you want it really badly because when I was reading your story, like you wanted Clara so mm-hmm. badly. And so I guess it's that polarization of getting that thing that you wanted and having this perfect child, but then, um, mm. but then feeling the way that, that you do. Did you feel um, like through that lens, did you feel blindsided? Yeah, hundred percent. Cause I had no idea what perinatal anxiety and depression was. And it took us about five years to fall pregnant with Clara. We were just about to start IVF. And then our IVF specialist went on holidays and we fell pregnant naturally when she <laughs> went away. And she's like, uh, this is exactly what happens to me all the time. You relax and then people fall pregnant. And which was just so amazing. And I was so excited to be pregnant. And and I was I've always wanted to be a mother. And then so when I suffered it severely, I had so much shame and guilt because I thought, how could I complain? I've always wanted this. Like this is something that I really craved. And I can't understand how I could be so depressed and sad. So I think that really rocked our world. And I think also because looking from the outside in and never really experiencing mental health beforehand either, I was always the happy person, the really positive person. And so when I was kind of going through it for the first few weeks, people would just say to me, you'll be right, you know, this isn't you, you'll you'll get out of it. You'll And so I kept thinking, yeah, you're right, I'll, I'll get out of it. And it, I just never could. I just could not get out of the funk. Uh, and that's why I really needed clinical expert help and, and to be admitted into hospital. It was the best place I could have gone to get myself better. Mm. I was reading that you slept for two to three hours a night for the first four months that she was here. Mm. Um, I'd love it if you could perhaps briefly take us back to that time. I can't, my my brain won't even let me go to what that would be like, like as somebody mm-hmm. who sleeps eight or nine hours a night, <laughs> the prospect of two to three hours, um, I can't even imagine. what. Like what was that, what did that feel like? It was so 
bizarre as well to me because I'm I was like you, Alison, like the sleeping queen. Like I could I could get down for a nap. I slept eight or nine hours. I used to brag about it. I'm like, oh my God, I'm the best sleeper. How could people not sleep? And then when I had the anxiety, which was so severe and this insomnia, it was the absolute, the most traumatizing. It was like The Walking Dead. Have you seen that TV yeah. show? Yeah, good show. Bad way to live. I was literally living like that. I was just walking around our house in Rose Bay like this zombie. And it was like really the dead of night. Like that is so true. Everyone else is sleeping soundly in their homes. And even my daughter was a really good sleeper. And there was me just pacing the house, not sleeping, putting more pressure on myself to sleep. And then started to Google, how is sleep deprivation bad for you? And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's really bad. Get some sleep. And then I got more pressure. And then I started taking sleeping pills. So I, I went on a really slippery slope, to be honest, after that. So I went and saw my GP and it was just a locum GP. My regular GP wasn't in that day. And she said, you need to get some sleep. So she gave me a couple of scripts for some sleeping pills. And I wasn't aware that they were highly addictive. And so I just kept taking them because when I had that first one block of four hours or five hours, I felt like a different person. I'm like, great, I can do that again. But what happens with sleeping pills is that they're very addictive. They sedate the brain. You get a block of sleep, but then you start needing more of that dose to get more sleep. So all of a sudden, four weeks later, I was taking four or five benzos and sleeping one hour a night. And that's when it was like catastrophic going, I am seriously like, I'm seriously screwed right now. Like I was so scared and I'm like, I cannot believe this isn't even touching the sides. Uh, So it had a huge impact on my mental health in every way. What advice do you have for new mothers now, like as you reflect on that time? And I guess I want to say, um, especially those very type A high functioning Mm. mothers, what advice would you have for them if they're hearing some of their story in yours now and they maybe haven't, thought about getting help yet? Because I know we kind of don't. Um, We aren't as proactive with our own mental well-being as we are with that of our maybe our baby or our husband. What would you, what advice would you give them? I would give them a couple of little tips. One, preparation. So just even knowing about perinatal anxiety and depression, especially if you feel like you're a bit of a risk at getting it. So contacting the Gidget Foundation and getting a resource kit around you or if you're a husband listening to the show then and you think oh my gosh my wife will definitely be a candidate for pnd then calling the gidget foundation and getting you equipped with signs and symptoms to look out for because i had the most cliche signs and symptoms and i was like ticking every single one of them off and i had no idea no idea i was like just classic pnd um two if you can financially afford it think about getting a night nanny Sleep is like your elixir for life. And who cares what people think about you, to be honest, if you're worried about it. Because it's that it's that motherhood shame, isn't it? Of like I know you should be able to do it. And I did it, so why can't you? If anyone's saying that to you, I say spring clean those people out of your life. (laughs) You need really positive, amazing people around you who have got absolutely no judgment. So if you're someone whose sleep is really valuable to you, like it is for me. I would honestly say straight away start researching and investigating into sleep nannies. If I ever had another baby, I would 100% get one for the first few months. The most beautiful thing is is that you get to sleep down in a different bedroom. The night nanny checks in at like 10. 
and leaves at 6am. They come in, you do the feed, they take them out, pat, 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 change nappy, pop them down to bed. You're getting quality rest and then you wake up and the baby gets the best, best version of you because you've had great sleep. So you and your partner are also having great chat uh, rather than in those first few months going, why the hell did I marry you? And you're going through because <laughs> <laughs> you're so sleep deprived. Um, so those two things, pre- preparation with the Gidget Foundation. Two, look into getting a sleep nanny. Three, start factoring how you're going to put in some self-care. People, when they become mums, feel very guilty about having some time to themselves. It couldn't be further from the truth. I want you to flip that lens and start looking at it as self-care becomes a discipline in your life. So when you get space from the baby, even if it's just for an hour, right, where you can get a nanny to come in or you get your mum or you get your best friend and say, hey, hun, can you mind the baby for an hour? I'm stepping out. I'm literally going to go down and have a coffee and just sit there by myself and read a magazine or just chill. Even better, if you can do some kind of self-care technique, we can go back to Pilates or go have a massage or go and connect with some girlfriends because when you come back, guess what? You're super excited to see your baby again and you've missed them. So it actually makes you a better mom. So we need to really just let go of the mummy guilt. Like we all feel it, but I promise you it'll make you a better mum because of it. Did you ever, I mean, how could you ever, but I'll ask the question anyway, like you went through such a a difficult and dark experience to now be on the other side educating people about this. Did you ever foresee this in your future? Like was this space something you were interested in before having a baby? I was, before I had a baby, I worked in healthcare. So I used to work for a company called Johnson & Johnson and they were brilliant. I worked really hard, like I used to do really long days and I used to take the edge off my stress with alcohol. That was my stress management technique back then. And then I would, I loved coffee. I still do, to be honest. Um, So I would get the coffees, I'd do the athletic training. So my life back then was work hard, party hard, play hard. All those kind of things were pretty hardcore. And then when I went through my severe adversity and learnt so much about myself. And I was very blessed because I had a psychiatrist who taught me a lot of things about gut health and mindfulness and meditation. And she really encouraged me to step into a new pathway of psychology um, because she said, you know, you've been through an episode yourself. So you really understand what suicide is like and you'll be able to talk to people with mental health and be, she's like, you're a really nice person and you're super caring. So I think you'd be really good in that space. And then when I left there, I actually spent some time at this place called Nantin Temple. It's in Wollongong and it's where all the Buddhist monks are and they're just beautiful. And I was doing loving kindness, compassion meditation. So my psychiatrist prescribed that to me, which what a legend. <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> Because I had to learn to love myself again after going through something like perinatal anxiety and depression. I had a lot of shame and guilt and fear for suffering, something like that. And by doing that practice of loving kindness, and if you're someone who is a perfectionist or you don't put out work unless it's 100% or you're not used to becoming first in the sporting field or you just got a, you know, a really critical voice, I highly recommend you start there just doing loving kindness, compassion meditation just for three minutes on one of the apps like Headspace or Calm. And what happens a few weeks later is that a part of the brain where gratitude kind of gets sort of grows in size, so where gratitude resides in the brain, the brain will actually hit the gym and you start getting more 
gratitude. And also what happens, you start getting more kindness towards yourself and compassion towards yourself. And then what happens is your lens changes. And when I was going through that experience and process at the Nantin Temple, one of the monks said to me, Chelsea, do you realise you had to go through what you went through to get to your true calling? And I'm like, wow, Hmm. I didn't realise that. And he said that's it gives you some kind of hope or growth in the trauma. And now, to be honest, Alison, I look at that experience of having P&D nearly now five years ago and it was the best thing that could have happened to me. Mm. Now, when you're going through trauma at that period of time and you can't see the way out, you're like, why is this happening to me? I'm a kind person. How could I get postnatal depression? (laughs) But what happens is when you actually change the lens and go, what can I learn from that? How could I grow from that? How could I help one person in this life so they never experienced what I did? You get so much more fulfilment. Mm. And so then then the company was kind of born. And I thought, imagine if I could help just one person. And that was my philosophy and it always is every day. Even when I go and speak to, you know, 2,000 people on stage, all I think of is this, if I touch one person in this in a really non-sexual way, that sounds really weird. If I have an impact on one person in this room, then that is so successful. Mm, I cannot tell you how much that resonates for me. Like when I started offline, I was like literally if 50 people listen to this thing Mm -hmm. and they hear some of their story in mine, much the same as yours, just high-functioning, senior role, Surviving on red wine and coffee, essentially. Oh, great friends. <laughs> yeah. I was you in hospital with me. We would have been having a great time. Exactly. Um, and then kind of everything that sort of fell down, you know, from there. And, and now this whole podcast is this exploration of self and who are we outside of those labels and how do we move past this obsession with our email signature and what we're called, mm. you know, because we've lost touch actually with um, with who we are and then your point on the lessons, like it's taken me a really long time, but I'm there now where any time and I'm suffering from, well, there is something quite big happening in my life right now. Mm. And me a year ago, I would have spiraled, like spiraled. Mm. And that even 12 months ago, but now it's the bizarrest thing because what's happening is actually potentially quite bad, but I have some calm around it. And The question that keeps coming up for me is like, okay, so what are we going to learn? What are we going to learn? Why are we here and what are we going to learn? And it's such a different way of being in the totality of an experience, isn't it, versus Mm -hmm. letting Mm -hmm. the experience have its way with you, I guess, Mm -hmm. is the way I think about that versus having some maybe not control. Control is probably not the right word, but maybe having more of a um, being more of an observer Mm. than a participant. That's nice. Mm. That's so true. And it's so interesting because no matter what we go, and life is going to throw us up some lemons, to be honest. Mm. If you haven't faced adversity yet, that I really hope you don't in life, but at some stage someone you love will die. At some stage someone you love will get a terminal illness. At some stage you may lose your job. You may get a divorce. All these kinds of things go alongside in our life cycle. So We need to have tools around us to be able to flex and bend and bounce forward so we don't stay stuck Mm. and where we're not getting 
the goodness out of life. There's an amazing, if people want to find a really great TED Talk on resilience and one really amazing tip on becoming mentally strong, there's an incredible TED Talk out there by Lucy Hone. She's a researcher in resilience and she's amazing. She's from New Zealand and in 2012 when she was doing her thesis on resilience, she lost her 12-year-old daughter. Oh, wow. And she died in a car accident and it's so sad And she said she had to, with all her research around resilience, all of a sudden she was in this situation in her own life where she had to see if these tools actually work. And a couple of things that she said were so powerful and I found that they really helped me as well recovering. And one of them was just this simple question, is this helping or harming me? So when I think about postnatal depression with me, when I first ended up in the hospital and I was looking at photos of Jay and I before Clara and how happy we were and all these kind of things. And I would pour over these photos while Clara was asleep and I couldn't stop crying. I would ask myself that question because my psychiatrist taught me this and great therapists would teach you this as well. Is what I'm thinking helping or harming me? This is actually harming me. So I'm going to put the photos away. I'm going to go give myself some kindness and go to sleep. And we can use that in any context of our life. Is this third drink that I'm about to have helping or harming my sleep? It's probably going to harm the sleep, so I'm not going to have it. Is <laughs> As delicious as it is. As amazing as wine is. Um, is my thought processes here at work, these negative sort of cycles I keep getting caught up in, is this helping me get that promotion or harming me? And it just brings you straight back into accountability and gives you power in the presence, and I love it. Oh, so that was, that was a really good TED Talk. So beautiful. And isn't it crazy to think about the amount of mental abuse we put ourselves through that we would mm. never, ever do to anybody else in our lives, mm. yet we just completely annihilate ourselves? We absolutely smash ourselves. <laughs> we do. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, and it's really interesting, and again in psychology we talk about um, when you say, imagine, would you say this to a good friend? But that, when we when we say that to people, they're like, uh, yeah, it kind of doesn't work for them. So what we now say is this, I want you to imagine somebody that you love the most in this world. And for me, it always comes up, Jay, Clara, my family. What you're saying, would you say that to them? And I'm like, no, I'd never say that to Clara. I may say it to Jay, my husband. Sometimes. <laughs> Definitely not Clara. <laughs> Definitely not Clara. But that is so powerful, again, because you're like, I would never say that to somebody that I loved. Mm. So I find that's a really nice shift too, a nice reframe. Yeah. Um, so that could be a good thing to try for people if they're, yeah, if they've really been quite aggressive with their self-chat. As you know, Offline Self-Care Sunday series in partnership with Estee Lauder exists to advocate for sleep and to highlight the powerful link between our eyes-closed state and the health and age of our skin. If you can identify that you're not sleeping enough or that the quality of sleep you're getting isn't great, Chelsea has a sleep program that she designed to help us build an accurate baseline of information about our sleep so we can set about improving the quality of it. The deeper the REMs, the more regenerating. P.S. I linked the Aura Ring and Whoop in the show notes. 
Yeah, it's just getting a baseline of where, how you're feeling you're sleeping in terms of the hours you're sleeping, the quality, the energy you're having during the day. I would love people to be able to have their biofeedback devices and track it. This is just a diagnostic tool that yep. you can use to track your baseline. And then as you go through the program, we really hope that that pendulum moves to more of the positive parameters. So one way to, but if they're looking for something to track, their sleep they can either use that diagnostic tool in our sleeping program or they could use a biofeedback device which is the three ones that I really like one's called an aura ring so it's like a it's not not like a mood ring it's like it's called aura but it's from it's made by scientists in the states and it tracks your REMs at a lot deeper level than what your Fitbit does which is excellent because when we do behaviors like checking our screens half an hour before bed or reaching for that third glass of Bollinger, your deep, you will notice it on your data is that the next morning your deep REM will be gone. It'll either be gone or really small. So what happens is it helps you really stay accountable to the hacks that you learn, like the science that you learn, and then you put your body to the test because your body doesn't lie. That's why I absolutely love always measuring data on myself. So you can either try that one. There's a device called Whoop. Um, which is W-H-O-O-P. And I'm not sponsored, by the way, by any of these devices. These are just ones that I try and really like. That measures your heart rate variability. So that gives you another measurement just to check how your body's recovering. So if my WHOOP scores are low, um, it means that I might be getting sick or my body's really recovering from the hit session I had at the gym yesterday or something's going on. I probably need to ease off today with the 5K run. I might do something more gentle like yoga. So that's another way, but it also will track your sleep too. So those two devices, I also have a Garmin watch that can track things. Um, so it just depends on your budget and also on how serious you want to get around sleep and tracking it. Very serious. Oh, you want to get serious? <laughs> no, I just think yeah. this, it's time and that's why I'm so glad we're having this conversation because it's just not something that I know particularly as very ambitious women we just haven't really had that modelling to show us that, you know, mm-hmm. to in order to be successful, we should be well slept, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I wonder, anyway, we can talk about it in a second, but um, is that kind of like hustling lady boss narrative, it's been incredible for our um, social and economic progression, but it's actually also made us really sick. Mm-hmm. And so I think about that a lot and just unsubscribing from that story that you should mm-hmm. be working through the night and that you should mm. be answering emails within, you know, 30 minutes of them coming in. Mm. So I think about this, you know, there's a great resource out there, a guy named Dr. Matt Walker. He was actually on our podcast. He's also on Joe Rogan. Alison, you should get him on your podcast. He's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I need guests. I will. He's a neuroscientist from Berkeley. He's brilliant. And it's really interesting, you know, World Health Organization has now linked a lack of sleep, like less than six hours a night with Alzheimer's disease, because what happens clinically in the brain is that you get these things called beta amyloid plaques that build up. And if you have that building up day after day, week after week, year after year, what happens is it's now linked to Alzheimer's and dementia. So to me, that's not inspiring, you know, to live that way where we end up with Alzheimer's and dementia in our older years. And even people like Margaret Thatcher and things like that who used to be really fastidious about not sleeping, lack of sleep, to almost paint this ironclad status of sleeping four hours 
a knight means that she had this really sort of very tough um, stoicism about her. But then what did Margaret Thatcher die of? Alzheimer's mm-hmm. and dementia. So I think the the narrative has to change. And I always look at successful people and what they're doing. I can guarantee and promise you right now, sleep for them is becoming like top priority. So we're no longer kind of honouring the machismo of the CEO flying in at two in the morning and then turning up at the office at six. Mm. Because what happens is so detrimental to the brain. Our memory can't consolidate. We crave more high glucose food. So we usually reach for the croissant or the bacon and eggs in the morning with the toast. We're not productive. Our cardio, if you're an athlete, your cardiovascular fitness drops by 30%. So in saying that, what we need is really good quality rest Mm. and having really good boundaries in our life to make sure that we're getting it. So this could be a good time where we give some tips unless you have another. Yeah, I mean, I would love some tips. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm sleeping for Australia these days, so I don't need the tips. But um, And I don't even say that smugly. I say that because it's been 18 months of reprioritization yeah, good. <laughs> to arrive here. Yeah. Good. Or you can throw in some tips as well. You probably know these tips. Go on. Um, so let, I'll give three. I'll give three because the brain kind of can really hold on to about three bits of information. So the best tip that we get hundreds of emails from a week from people around Australia is getting off your screens half an hour before bed. Mm-hmm. The reason when people understand the biomechanics of the brain, it will intrinsically drive them to start doing this behavior because you'll hear it all the time in media. Yeah, get off the screens, get off the screens, but then no one kind of does it. The reason being that they don't do it is because they don't have the intrinsic motivation to do it because they sometimes don't have uh, any sort of insight to what the brain is doing in that period of time. So in a little nutshell, and this is again, Dr. Matt Walker, when I was listening to his research He'll talk about this a lot and it also is presenting a lot in PubMed. So we go to PubMed. If you're ever looking for scientific literature, by the way, head to PubMed and check out the double-blinded randomised clinical trials there because that's where all the science is. So it was showing us that people who are on their screens half an hour before bed, it stimulates the back of your eyeball and then it sends so so the blue and red light coming off the screen it will send a signal back through the eye, which then tells the pineal gland in the brain to turn the taps off for melatonin. Now, you need melatonin to take you down into something called a deep NREM sleep. Now, when you're doing behaviours like that, it actually tells the pineal gland, hey, it's still daytime, too dangerous to go down into a deep NREM. Let's take your light REM, turn the taps off for melatonin so we can't guide you down. And it's amazing because when I say this in our events, people will challenge it and go, ah, that's crap, love. We watch movies and fall asleep on the couch. That's usually like my minors or plumbing conferences, by the way, which are (laughs) legends. I love training them. Um, But what I say then is this. I show them then my biofeedback devices from the Aura Ring and me challenging up the research myself. And it will show that I clock enough sleep when I'm on my screens half an hour before bed. So I might get seven and a half hours. And then I'll say the latency, which is time to go off into sleep, is six minutes, so that's really quick. Mm. But what it will show for the deep REM score, it'll be less than 1.5 hours every time. Now, we need 1.5 hours of deep REM sleep to wake up fully restored and bouncing out of our bed. So it's like the number one misconception in Australia because people will be asleep for long enough. They're like, yeah, had 10 hours, but hang on, I'm still waking up fatigued, tired, I must have low iron. The biggest thing is usually 85% of the time 
they're not clocking enough deep REM. Mm. So we say get off your screens half an hour if you're a lark, morning lark, like early to bed, early to rise, 9 o'clock is kind of the screen time to get off. It coincides with the melatonin production for our night hours, 10.30. So they get another hour and a half to us. And just check yourself. You don't even need an aura ring to tell you this stuff. Yeah. Go to night to bed with no screens and then notice your energy in the morning. It'll be like incompletely different to what you've experienced. Mm-hmm. So that's tip one. Tip two is watch you wear to bed. A lot of us go to bed way too hot. So we need to start stripping some gear off. Now you don't have to go completely nude. You can just go like singlet, underwear. There's a little trick putting socks on your feet before you go to sleep. And the socks, reason being, oh, that'll be um, controversial. Yes. Won't because it? it's so sexy. <laughs> I think people are either like, like in winter I do, but Tony's like, get those off me. <laughs> <laughs> There's a very funny YouTube clip called Business Time, I think it is, with, when they've got their sex socks on. But from, from a scientific point of view, the socks at the start of the night before you go off into sleep the trick is, is it charms the blood away from the body core to your feet, allowing the body core temperature to drop one degree Celsius, two to, four, two to three degrees Fahrenheit, they say, one degree Celsius here in Australia. The body core and the brain core temp need to drop. Now, that's, that's a huge thing in Australia because we do go to bed way too hot. So you just taking off a little bit of gear tonight as you go to bed. Uh, I, I use an ULA on my bed. It's just a mattress. Um, it looks like a mattress topper but it's got cold water that pumps through the mattress and it takes my body core temp down to about 19 degrees Celsius. And then tip three is the alcohol. So PubMed every time talks about alcohol and deep REM goes after two standard drinks. And it's not like we're saying no alcohol. We're just saying just curtail it back. So quality over quantity. So have a really nice glass of Shiraz, have a beautiful vodka, have a really nice whatever. Usually during the week we say try and limit like to a few alcohol-free nights, especially if you've got a big day and you need to be super thriving uh, at home, at your workplace, wherever you are. And then on the weekend, if you've got like a wedding or a party or something going on, we say, you know what, just go for it. You know, if you step over the two-drink rule, have a great time, light yourself up. You know, you're not going to sleep that well anyway, so you might as well have a big run. Yeah. And that's the integration of life you know people assume that I'll turn up as a vegan and not drink coffee or alcohol but it's just not it's just not true yeah I love the same as me because I I talk so much about like exploring how spirituality shows up for me and I'm a Vedic meditator and all of this stuff there is Mm. a real perception that I am vegan that I don't drink and I keep saying you know to these beautiful people who kind of challenge me if they see me sharing things on Instagram that they didn't think I did that like I first of all I just need you to let go of like who you need me to be for you because Mm -hmm. I just can't put that pressure on myself like I'm gonna go crazy but like it's also like I've actually never said I am so it's always interesting that what becomes a projection of somebody's beliefs that they put onto you. So we've heard some incredible advice from Chelsea on how to think about the quality of our sleep. And next, I wanted to learn more about the link between sleep and skin. It's no secret that I'm a huge Advanced Night Repair fan, and Tony is as well, which can be mildly annoying when I'm running low and he, quote unquote, borrows mine. 
I use it before bed each night and sure it feels like a luxury in my routine, but I mainly use it for the skin tech in the serum. It was created specifically to work with our skin's own circadian rhythm, which peaks at nighttime. Surely this is the best anti-aging solution out there, to let our bodies do what they are naturally designed to do. Chelsea explains. There was a study done where, which is so amazing, it was this model contest and so the judges were just looking at photographs of models. And the next night, and it is in a study, so the next night one of the variables that they put into this study was one of the groups of models had to get, that, like they changed their sleep pattern and, and brought them back to about four to five hours of sleep. So from an eight-hour sleep window to about four to five. And the very next day they had to send through the photographs of what they looked like the next day. And even though it was the same person, the judges judged them completely different based on their looks. Mm. The one that was well-rested and well-slept, they're like, yeah, absolutely, we'll send them a contract. The one, same person that was underslept four to five hours the next day, no contract. And it was like 100% on every model that they actually analysed had the same response. Sleep is so important to your beauty, to your skin. It resets your cellular growth. It actually resets your microbiome, which is linked also. Your gut health is linked to your skin too. So I think it's this whole thing again, you know, when you're getting adequate rest and the right quality type of rest, it gives every chance to your body, your cells, your brain, your organs, your skin to regenerate and renew and if you are using, you know, an Estee Lauder product, they've got amazing serums actually at nighttime that I use. The way you wake up the next day is just completely different. So I think not just from a beauty skin perspective, but from a confidence perspective. Yeah. You know, not only is your skin looking good, but you've got more energy, so you're more confident. So there's there's so many avenues you can go down with this sleep. And I really hope the young girls that are listening don't sacrifice it. I really hope that they learn from this podcast that whether it's the intrinsic motivation of having more beautiful skin or the really intrinsic motivation of having better mental health or a better memory or being more focused or being able to run faster or harder, whatever that is for you, I hope you start honouring that and, mm. you know, carve in those boundaries at night time to give yourself the chance to have eight or nine hours of sleep. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say is like, it's okay if vanity is your motivator at some stage in your life. Like if if wanting more beautiful, youthful skin um, mm. is important to you over, if you're not thinking about, say, mental health or brain health, that's okay too. That still means like to prioritise the eight or nine hours a night. How do you um, sort of... I guess, own the power of the night in your life? Like what do you do before you go to bed? Skincare-wise, mm. sure, but also just how do you set yourself up for like those deep REMs? So regularity is really important in our house and also regularity for people sleep anyway. So going to bed and waking up at the same time is crucial. I kind of stopped drinking fluids at about 8 o'clock at night just so it it doesn't wake me up to do a midnight wee. So they kind of get trimmed out from about 8 p.m. onwards. Before I go to sleep, I usually have some kind of magnesium because a lot of us are magnesium deficient. So I use a product called Bioceuticals Ultra Muscle Ease Night. 
Again, not sponsored by them. I just love their products and I find that that is a really tasty kind of like aperitif before I go to sleep. Then I will stretch. So there's no screens after about nine o'clock for us because my husband and I are larks. So the screens will be off. We've got a couple of yoga mats in the lounge room. We'll stretch. We talk. We'll then go to bed. I usually do a 10-minute guided meditation, so I use Headspace or Calm. And then with the Calm, I'm usually not asleep after that, so I've still got the lamp on and I read just a nice little book. And then just before I go to sleep, I'll put on one of their meditations again and it'll take me down into a deep sleep. Now with my room, and because sometimes the screens are in there, I make sure that the flight mode's off. There's no Wi-Fi. The screen is down, so it's black in my room. There's also a lot of oxygen-releasing plants, and so there's only three of them. Most plants absolutely release oxygen, but there's three that do it very, very efficiently and very well and give you more oxygen. So we have either aloe vera, peace lilies or mother-in-law tongue plants in all of our bedrooms. So it's giving us really nice oxygen inside the room. It's super cool. So the the Ula chili pad is on our mattress keeping us nice and cool. It's very, very quiet and it's very dark. So I can't even see my arm stretched out in front of me. That's how black it is. Oh, wow. Super dark. So they're really good requirements. A few times a week I'll have hot sex with my husband too. That'll get yeah. me into a good mood. <laughs> yeah. That's nice and relaxing always. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that because that's a big part of our emotional well-being and mm. you know there's also a link between um orgasm and um the flush the the beauty glow <laughs> oh, yeah. as well so right yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um I'm going to let you go because I know you've got to go and pick your beautiful little girl up but um I ask each of my guests a final question Mm-hmm. Um, as I was saying, offline exists as an exploration of self and who are we without all the labels um, that we put on ourselves and all of our achievements and and our social media followers. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're sitting in your true self, um, who are you and what comes up for you when I say that? What comes up for me is a few things. One, love. I have an immense amount of love for my family, myself, and my very, very good friends. Two is contribution. So I'm always thinking about other people, to be honest. I'm always thinking about how we contribute as a family to the fires, how we can contribute to people's life more, um, but how we can also contribute to ourselves and making sure our family is really, really nourished. And the last thing is adventure. I We just have so much fun in our family life and our with my very, very close girlfriends and fun and adventure. I just think life, there's only one of them. We've got to really grab, you know, life by the horns and really live it. And that's why I kind of have a bit of a jovial, I guess, style with my keynote deliveries and on podcasts and, and lightening up a little bit because what I deliver is mental health education and it's such a serious topic so just bringing a slight bit of cheekiness or fun or things like that to it, it just softens it down a little bit and makes it more enjoyable. Mm. So I think those are the main things is adventure, love and contribution that come up for me. That's a really beautiful answer. And well, three, again, 
Oh, yeah, because the brain only likes three and my brain obviously quite clearly loves three. It's so interesting. Uh, <laughs> I actually learned something through that and it helps me think about my own storytelling actually um, to help people really receive what it is I believe I'm here to give. Um, mm. I just want to thank you so much. That was beautiful. Thank you, Alison. I Thanks appreciate for me. you taking the time. Um, That's a privilege, darling. Yeah, and teaching us and... Um, yeah, I'll, I'll link all the things you were talking about. Yeah, amazing. Thank Thanks, you. Gorgeous. Thank you, darling. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Offline. You can find more episodes at offlinethepodcast.com or by subscribing wherever you like to listen. If you know someone who would benefit from hearing these honest conversations, please share Offline with them.